Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ideas Matter. We've been promising this one for quite some time, and we were hoping to be in our beautiful studio, but I've been struck down by the virus once again. I've got COVID, um, although I feel completely fine, nonetheless, just playing it safe. So we apologize if the audio is not as crisp as you've become accustomed to. But yeah, today we're doing Confessions by St. Augustine. Um, I actually can't remember which one of us originally suggested this. Do you, do you remember? Um, no, not really, to be honest. Yeah. It's, I think we, we both kind of wanted to read it, uh, for mm. separate reasons and decided this was a good thing to come on to. Yeah, I think that's right. Actually, I think we both sort of came to it independently for, for different reasons. So why, why did you sort of come to this text? What were your reasons for wanting to read it? fourth century theologian well i've become increasingly more interested in religion and religious thoughts and this is one of the most influential works in sort of christian writing and theology uh because saint augustine is kind of one of the biggest theologians in the tradition um and also this is probably his more most accessible work because it's it's made to be a sort of uh conversion narrative as uh as an explanation and a sort of guide to other people so that's why this one kind of pick, picked up my uh attention and also just because of the influence of it you know it's through this pod we've realized more and more how how much christianity and christian thought undergirds pretty much all of western thought and philosophy so Work. where better to go than the source of much of this thought to get a better understanding of all the things that come after. Yeah, I definitely share the um, the, geneal- the genealogy of, of Western thought interest, although more specifically to Augustine, I think from memory I was first exposed to him, I was reading uh, a big book on politics by Alan Ryan, which is a history of political thought. Uh, and so it's sort of the pre-modern world. It's part one of the book um, when he goes through, you know, obviously the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last chapter of antiquity before you get to the middle, medieval era is a chapter on Augustine. And I found that chapter really fascinating um, because there's a bit in there where Alan Ryan talks about how one of the things that people grapple with um, in Christianity is the presence of evil. And how do you reconcile this with a supposedly, you know, omnibenevolent God? And, you know, even in our contemporary world, when tragedies happen, children die of cancer, for example, uh, people sort of twist themselves in knots to explain how that can happen. Um, But Augustine has this, just this candor and honesty to him. And I think in, in Alan Ryan's words, Augustine would just say, well, the children who die, um, they're sinful. Um, it's, it's, he just bites the bullet and goes the whole way. Uh, he doesn't try and bend over backwards and have this sort of apologetics. He goes, no, like they're sinful. Uh, that's why they that's why they've died. Um, so I really just appreciated the forthrightness of that and the candor of that. Uh, but as it turns out, like that sort of idea that humans are innately sinful um, and there's an element that can't ever be fully redeemed in this life. 
has influenced a lot of political thought, uh, especially in international relations, um, sort of like classical realism, which is that like war occurs because humans basically have a lust for power or a lust for domination. Um, a lot of IR thinkers were really influenced by Augustine's view of sin and that we sin because we enjoy it and it's just a natural part of human existence and it can't be cured through rationality and any sort of sophisticated politics that like takes the human condition seriously has to grapple with this problem of sin and that we are like sinful creatures by nature. Uh, it's not an aberration. It's just, it's there. It's part of us. Um, so I, I actually found that to be, although I don't necessarily share the theological reasoning, like original sin, that sort of stuff. I actually found it to be quite a persuasive or more realistic account of human nature than most of what you get written today by political scientists. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. That, uh, you know, even though you might not necessarily agree with you know the, the theological bent to which he's saying all of this, he does really indicate towards a bunch of things that are uh, deep within human nature um, and how humans act and relate to one another and things like, I don't know, the nature of reality in the universe, which, you know, I, I think for Augustine, you can't take out the whole Christian element, but there's no reason that you can't view this from outside a Christian perspective and not gain a lot of stuff from it, you know? Yeah. Either way, whether you're religious or not, I mean, this guy's clearly very introspective, um, and has a lot of insights about the human condition, which are very, very interesting. Um, but also his like interpretation of the Bible is very much informed by Neoplatonism. Um, so there's that element to it as well. So there's a lot to really gain here. Even if you're, you don't consider yourself religious, you've no intention of reading anything to become religious. Um, it, I think a, a, as a work in itself, it just sort of stands on its own legs, I think, in terms of its psychological and, and, and philosophical content would you agree yeah 100 percent. when i was reading it i was struck by how modern it felt and then i thinking that i realized i kind of got that the wrong way around it's not that this feels modern so much as modern things draw upon this um it really feels like a lot of what the existentialists go for which is you know like deep psychological sort of like introspection and self-insight and taking apart your own thoughts and feelings and where you sit in the universe and how you relate to all of that. Um, uh, as it turns out, Camus uh, did a thesis on St. Augustine, which is partly explains that existentialist feel to it, which, you know, doesn't run from Camus to Augustine, it runs from Augustine to Camus and to the other existentialists. Apparently also Kierkegaard drew a lot on Augustine, but I can't, I admit that I'm not all too familiar with him. Um, also, I found this good quote from uh, Wittgenstein, who apparently was a very big fan of Augustine. On the Confessions, he said, uh, it's the most serious book ever written. Um, apparently, Freud was a big fan of it as well, which you can see through you know, how granular he is in picking apart his own mind. And uh, so there's a lot of interesting stuff about his relationship with his mother um <laughs> that's that's true actually i i like there was a part of the book where i wrote down on the side like 
subconscious and he's this big paragraph where he's talking about entering into like the depths of his memory and he's talking about it's sort of really read to me like uh, an explanation of the subconscious so I did think of Freud as well but not the yeah the, like his mother features very heavily in the books so that's another <laughs> way that Freud comes in that's so interesting um, but yeah not just like with modern western thinkers are there resonances but also with other traditions and religions I mean I know the most about like Chinese philosophy and I found so much in here that resonated with elements of Chinese philosophy um, but we'll we'll get to that later obviously I am oh, um, yeah. 100% like the the more I read this the more it felt like wow this really echoes I, I, I don't know much about Chinese thought but I have a very shallow passing understanding of Hinduism. Um, and reading this, I thought, once you strip away the biblical parts, his understanding of God and his relation to God feels very Hindu. It's very interesting. But, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. That's interesting because I think it's very Taoist, um, but perhaps they're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, allegedly there's only one God, so... <laughs> It could be all the same. Um, but, yeah, I think just we've sort of given the significance of the text but to orient people a little bit better. Um, who was he? He was writing this, uh, look, he was writing it in the 390s AD, um, a rough, I've made 396, 398 was when it was published. That might could be wrong. Um, but it's a very old text. It's written in the 4th century. Uh, Christianity is obviously prevalent, but it's not dominant yet. Um, so there's still persecution of Christians. Um, so that's just the sort of context that, that he's writing in. Is there anything else that you think is relevant? Yeah. Um, a big thing is that he's writing this around the time of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. So the Eastern Roman Empire, which today we call the Byzantines, survived pretty well, but the Western Roman Empire, which is sort of everything west of i don't know like the balkans and also north africa everything west of like egypt um collapsed uh that because by that time the empire had split into two different administrations east and west and the west uh just completely collapsed under the weight of you know um economic downturn and outside invasions and social and political collapse uh, so when he's writing this, it's at a time where the Roman Empire is incredibly developed. Like it, it's at a very late, mature stage of itself as an empire, but it's also that end stage. It's things are really starting to fall apart. Um, interestingly enough, he died uh, in the year four thirty when his city. He, he later becomes a bishop. Um, and the city in which he's a bishop is being sieged by the Vandals, which were like a Germanic tribe. And this is all the way in uh, sort of coastal Algeria, current day Algeria. Back then it was uh, the Roman North African province. Um, so, yeah, it's a time of real upheaval. So it's we, we might be able to use that a bit to inform why he places so much emphasis into the life of contemplation, the life of... Uh, the spirits as opposed to worldly affairs because the world around him is quite literally collapsing. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point to stress um, because, yeah, I think you can understand a lot of his sort of, in in a similar way that you can understand Hobbes by knowing that Hobbes is writing in the English Civil War. So, of course, he would think life is nasty, brutish and, thought, and short. Similarly, like, yeah, Augustine is writing in the collapse of, of the Western Roman Empire and, um, yeah, and so his, his retreat from politics, the going inward... Um, I don't think he has a pessimistic is not the right word, but you know what I mean. That sort of outlook on life and the, and the world um, is very much informed by, yeah, the, the, the political context that he's writing in. Um, and similarly, like this is often said about stoicism as well. I mean, stoicism sort of gets popular in times when people feel like they don't have a lot of control over external political events. Um, which is perhaps one of the reasons why Stoicism today is making a bit of a comeback. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that, that's a good point to, to bring up in terms of understanding the text. Uh, and also just in terms of a little bit more um, biographical information, uh, well, this is quite literally like an autobiography, so I'm not going to harp on about anything that we're going to be covering in the episode. But um, after the period of the autobiography, like I said, he ends up becoming a bishop in a North African city um, and becomes a very prevalent theologian and uh, gets two titles within the Catholic Church later on where he's both a church father, which is like an incredibly influential early theologian, and then also a doctor of the church, which is someone whose writings on Christianity have sort of like special weight and influence for doctrine later on. So um, that's just to hammer home the sort of centrality of him as a figure for later Christian and especially Catholic, but also some Protestant thought too when that split ends up occurring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, it's really quite hard to overestimate the importance of his thought. Uh, I think probably the best way to start to sort of get into it then um, would be his view on the nature of sin uh, because the book is obviously called confessions. And so he's, it's written like he's addressing God um, and he's very self-aware of that. Like I think he says several times in the book, like, why am I writing this when you know what I'm thinking? I, I don't have to write this or say this for you to know it. So it's at once written as addressed to God, but it serves a sort of double purpose in that he's hoping that other Christians will read it. Um, but it's a confession of sin, at least in the first part. And he talks about this experience as a child or in his adolescence um, when he and his friends steal some pears, which, you know, you'd think is a fairly sort of innocuous thing to do, um, but he sort of beats himself up quite hard about it. But what's interesting is what he says about the motivation for, for stealing these pears. And I wrote down these quotes um, He's talking about the group of people that he that he stole his pears with. He says, they derived pleasure not merely from the lust of the act, but also from the admiration it evoked. And then he says of his own motivation, my desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and of doing what was wrong. Our pleasure lay in doing what was not allowed. So, yeah, I think you have a really interesting view of why people do bad things um, because you have to sort of remember at the time as well and in ancient Greek thought prior to this, there's this view that no one does wrong knowingly. If people have sort of perfect information, 
they won't do the wrong thing. Um, but this is very different to that because it's more about, no, there's, we, we can know something's wrong, but we, but that's why we like doing it. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And it's that stealing the pair episode uh, really is pivotal because like you said, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Like it's not a good thing to do, but it's, you know, it's just, it's just some pairs, you know, but he, he makes a point of saying the reason why it's so significant is because it's so insignificant. You know what I mean? Like he, yeah, they're just pairs, but he took them not because he was hungry, not because he actually needed any pairs. Like he, he makes a point of saying, like, I could have just gotten pairs at home. Like it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, the a little bit before this, this is this episode of the pairs is in book two, but at the very end of book one, he makes a point of saying that habits and by extension sins are learned and developed in childhood. Um, I've got a quote here. We are carried away by custom to our own undoing, and it is hard to struggle against the stream, which is really, if you think about it, for someone who's writing this around like the year 400 is a remarkable bit of like psychological insight um, that, you know, you go read something like Atomic Habits. <laughs> uh, so through doing something small like this, he's building the habit. Like he's developing himself along the path to be a sinful person uh, and do sinful acts and give into that instead of, you know, being someone who focuses on a, on a good godly life. Um, although also I do think that uh, thing of doing it, because other people around too was a big factor. Like he does bad things for the social recognition of having done bad things. He also mentions right before the stealing the pears episode that he, he was sort of, he didn't really want to do too many, you know, sinful things. He didn't want to be a bad kid, but he would lie to his friends about having done bad stuff because he wants the social recognition for it. Like he thought I'm going to look weak and like I'm a coward if I don't tell people I've done this and that. Um, So social pressure and social recognition plays a big role in doing sinful things. He knows it's sinful. Nonetheless, he does it for the sort of prestige of it. Yeah. He, he does go on to say of of the, of the pair case, um, This is a quote. Yet had I been alone, I would not have done it. My pleasure was the crime itself done in association with a sinful group. So, I mean, there's a bit of ambiguity there for me, whether he's saying that just he himself wouldn't have done that. uh, Or is he saying like, is he making a broader point that people sin in groups? It's sort of the group mentality that creates sin. Um, it's, that's a bit a bit ambiguous for me. Do you do you have any thoughts on what he means? I, I think your latter point is the correct one. You know, it's it's through the group that we come to these sinful activities, and it's through groups that these are encouraged. Because although you know, there's there's an element of us you know, per the Christian doctrine of original sin, um, which for those of you who don't know, original sin is the idea that we are all marked we are all born into sin, right? And we can take away the theological idea of sin and replace it with, you know, immorality, doing bad things. We're all given towards that naturally and you have to work towards being good. Um, So there's an element to which it's both sort of within himself and without himself, but he says, 
he indicates towards the idea that he wouldn't have done such an act were it not for the influence of others. I think, actually, yeah, the more I think about it, the more I can, the more sort of ambivalent I get about it myself. <laughs> yeah, I just thought of another contradiction because, like, yeah, you, you're talking about original sin, and obviously he holds that to be true that every human has within them the original sin and the capacity to be sinful because we're fallen. But what you were saying earlier about the importance of habit and when we're young, you know, we, we do things cause we don't know. Um, or rather it's actually, you might reconcile this by saying that like as babies were originally sinful. Um, and so we, we act sinfully and then this becomes habit and then it becomes even harder to unpick that habit. Um, so that might be a way of reconciling. Is it, innate or is it socially conditioned habit it could be both Um, yeah no yeah i i think that's the best way to go about it and that's also probably what augustine would say himself yeah it becomes sort of like a like a vicious cycle like it's self-fulfilling after a point yeah true yeah cycle of cycle of vice very very true um (laughs) i loved his bit about babies where he's like babies are crying because they're trying to like influence the world and they're like these greedy lustful things that just like want stuff and that's why they cry and like act out i I thought it was just such a a weird thing to say but again very freudian or yeah perhaps the other way freud is very augustinian in that uh freud would say or as a baby your ego sort of encompasses the world right Mm. everything is an extension of yourself. So the uh, the idea that uh, a baby cries because, you know, it's it's greedy and it can't communicate, communicate how much it wants, wants things and it wants attention um, isn't uh, such a foreign notion to uh, later psychoanalytic thought. Mm, very true. Um and just on the, the note about psychoanalysis, yeah, his mum features quite heavily in, in this because she was the Christian, not his dad, um, which is interesting because I don't think he ever converted his father. I don't think he ever became a Christian. I th- um, they mentioned- he, on, his, on his deathbed, maybe. Yeah, on his deathbed, he converts. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, yeah, like she, in you know, but certainly while he was growing up in the household, she was the one who was, who was like hev- heavily religious and Christian and sort of she like recurs throughout the book when he's talking about her and how she really wants him to become a devout Orthodox Christian. Um, and he's sort of talking, talking to God being like, you know, you, you knew that this was her hope and through, you know, in a sense, like because she was so devout, one of her rewards is seeing him become an Orthodox Christian um, and God's acting through him to become a Christian. And also the flip side of that is that like she being such a positive presence in his life, it's actually God acting through her to push him towards Christianity. Uh, It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Although there is an interesting sort of interplay in her, of her influence though, because although she, on the one hand is the, you know, strong Christian figure that, you know, that moral voice, uh, that religious voice through his life. Um, She is also the one who sort of encouraged him to, uh, for a bit of context, they were were in a smallish town. 
uh, in North Africa. And she was the one who encouraged him to go off to Carthage, which was the one of the biggest North African cities um, in the Roman Empire, and to go there to study and further his career so he could build a better life. But it's in Carthage that he sort of falls deeper into a sinful life. So it's an interesting sort of uh, interplay there. And by a sinful life, we mean having sex. Um, he, he spends a lot of time in the book really flagellating himself um, for his sexual desire and his propensity as a young man in Carthage to have sex with with people. Um, he's a lustful man. He, You sort of wonder, wonder to what extent he's any more lustful than like an average person or whether he was excessively lustful and that's why he's so sickened by himself or whether this is just, I don't know, it's a very peculiar, I found this thread of the book highly peculiar because he seems sort of unnaturally uh, obsessed with curtailing his own sexuality. And I don't know to what extent that's a reflection of the time. I mean, certainly the introduction, the edited introduction to the version I'm reading, uh, which is the Oxford World Classics edition, uh, the translations by Henry Chadwick, uh, the you know, the edited introduction makes a point of saying, well, um, sex at that time, sexual desire was well understood by all the philosophers to be an impediment to the good life because desire distracts us from reason, etc. Uh, but even then, even then, it, it, it seems excessive to me. Um, and the introduction, the introduction's written by the translator, Henry Chadwick. He mentions that the sort of Christian turn, Western in general, view or equation of sex and sexual desire as being n- next to sin uh, he sort of suggests that that really comes unwittingly through Augustine. So, yeah, I, I find that fascinating and I honestly find it quite peculiar why he's so obsessed with his sexuality. Yeah, it it, it is the main sin of his life that he tends to focus on, right? It's the main vice that seems to dominate himself and his thoughts and his desires. Um, But I think we can explain it through that, you know, like he says that like uh, sin occurs as a failure to control like your impulses and emotions. Um, uh, He has another quote here. Evil is nothing but the removal of goods until finally no good remains and that sin is not against God, but against oneself. So it's not so much that like his lust, not his lust, but lust in particular is so, you know, exquisitely bad, but for himself, his experience of lust is what drove him further and further into seeking meaning and, and, you know, fulfillment through his sensual desires and through sensual pleasure. And that is the thing that took him further and further away from living a good life. I think if, you know, this was written by someone who was focused on, say, uh, gaining a lot of wealth and becoming a very rich man, the focus of uh, 
and and his conversion story, his focus would be on greed as opposed to lust. But I think because lust is the thing that he felt uh, most dominated his life from uh, staying away from a godly path, that's the reason why he focuses on it so much. So it's not lust per se, it's lust for him. Yeah, that makes sense. What he's really railing against is like searching for happiness in the sensual pleasures. And for him, that most readily manifests in his sexual appetite. Um, Yeah. And so that idea that like, you know, we don't find happiness, we don't find truth in the sensual pleasures is, is an interesting one. And I want to come back to it because it was really influenced for him personally reading a book by Cicero, where Cicero argues that people look for truth and happiness in the wrong place. But Tragically, that book by Cicero is lost to us now. We don't have it, um, which is just makes me so sad because, you know, you don't want to play on the swing until someone else sits on it. And as soon as I found out that that book, we, can't, we, don't, we don't have access to it anymore. I wanted to read it so badly. Um, hopefully one day they find it. But I, just to give people a picture of, you know, how he describes himself in this state, which t- today we might regard as just a normal way to be in your early 20s or mid-20s, he says of himself, my soul was in rotten health. In an ulcerous condition, it thrust itself to outward things, miserably avid to be scratched by contact with the world of the senses. Like, it's just, on the one hand, it's phenomenal writing, um, but it's really like this view of earthly pleasures. Um, You mentioned before them being the absence of good. Um, and this is an idea that comes from from Plato and then the Neoplatonists that sin or evil, whatever you want to call it, is the absence of good. It's defined by the privation of good or the privation of God, to use Augustine's language. So the more that we try and find happiness in sensual pleasures, earthly pleasures, the more we're going away from the good because those things are defined by the absence of the good. Yeah, and I think it's important to read this. We're reading this, and it's like, yeah, he's in his uh, around his like late teens and in his twenties, and he's talking about God. It was so awful how focused I was on sensual pleasure. But he's not writing this and reflecting on this as someone at that age. He's writing and reflecting on this as someone who's in his middle age, looking back on his life after his journey toward God. Like, right? So. He, all of this sort of like like lamentation about his misspent youth is uh, marked by the idea that this is all like a false path. Like he he's from the time he was writing this, he's at a place of happiness and fulfillment because of his focus uh, on his relationship to God and living a godly life. Right. So he looks back on everything here as like, well, I was so mistaken about what I thought was worthwhile and valuable. You know. Um, but just on that, uh, I missed my chance to bring this up a bit earlier when we started talking about his move to Carthage. But you mentioned something about uh, an extraordinary piece of writing. And he is a fantastic writer. I mean, I've got to say, we are reading translations. So I don't know how he reads in Latin, but um, he just has some magnificent turns of phrase. Like when he goes to Carthage, he says, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. That's a hell of a line. He's, he's a really good writer. 
Yeah, there were actually several moments in the book where I laughed out loud when he describes um, like rhetoricians and people who just like one day they go to the theatre or the public square or whatever and they defend one position and then the next day they come back and they defend the exact opposite position and they're just, you know, highly skilled rhetoricians. Um, the way that he describes those people, it just like literally had me laughing, like how how evocative and how cutthroat he is in his descriptions. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Uh, also, it is worth mentioning that um, sort of along his life journey, he goes to Carthage to actually study rhetoric and he later becomes a professor of rhetoric um, in the sort of broader circle of the Roman emperor uh, after they've moved the capital to Milan. Um, so he that really plays into what he's doing here in writing the book too, yeah? He's writing this sort of as a uh, his own sort of confessions to God, but he's keep in mind he's also a professor of rhetoric. He's being, I feel, very intentional in what he's presenting and how he's presenting it to get people to come along on this spiritual journey with him and hopefully to, you know, show how to and why to convert to Christianity, um, which I feel like he does a very very good job of doing. Like he, he does make it sound very nice, but it's mm. he, he is using these techniques that he's also pointing out in other people too. Yeah, his 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 relationship in the book with with his skills in rhetoric is quite interesting, and I I, I think he has a an ambivalent relationship with it because on the one hand he sort of resents it, he he resents it as a profession because it's not concerned with truth, it's concerned with appearances, so he resents it on that hand, but on the other hand, you're right, he uses it to great effect. And he sort of turns it around to use it in pursuit of the truth. He uses it to convince people. I mean, this book is written for an external audience and it's written deliberately in this style. It's written polemically. Um, yeah, so he has this yeah, interesting relationship with his skills in rhetoric. Yeah, um, though he is also like one of the most prolific writers um, of Christianity, not just like around this time, but like in history as well. Like I'm just reading the, I, I have the Penguin edition. I'm just reading the first page where it gives a little bit of information about the author. Um, and it says that his written output was vast. There survived 113 books and treatises, over 200 letters and more than 500 sermons. So you know, even if he didn't think that his, uh, uh, time spent studying rhetoric and living the life of a teacher was all that godly. He, I don't know, I guess you could say that he went on to put it to fairly godly use. Yeah. Well, there's a reason for everything, right? So, you know, God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> Perhaps that was all part of his plan. Um, there's one little philosophical point that I feel like I should explain because I sort of mentioned, we mentioned it before in the privation of good. Um, and that might not be self-evident for why someone would think that. Um, and I, you have to bear in mind that this is influenced, his reading of the Bible is influenced by Neoplatonism and just Platonism. Um, and the idea is there, as some of you will be familiar with this, obviously, that like the real world is not that which we can see. 
the world that we can see is the world of appearances. Um, it's where um, it's misleading. The real world is that which we can fleetingly access through the use of our reason. And everything that we see, be it a physical object or be it a experience, beauty, love, etc., these things only have their existence because they partake in a form that is real, the form of the good, the form of the beauty, etc., the perfect forms. And so everything in our world is an imperfect imitation or approximation of this more real reality um, that we don't live in day to day, but we can access it fleetingly through our power of reason. But that takes a lot of hard work, um, which is why the Greeks loved the philosophers, right? Because they, well, the philosophers love themselves, I should say. They thought they were the ones who had privileged access to it. Um, so that idea is is influencing this interpretation. So when he's railing against the pleasures of of, of the earth, right? It's, it's because there's a metaphysics there that underpins that it's, well, you're not going to find happiness. You're not going to find truth in anything material because ultimately this world is not completely real. It's just, it's a shadow. It's an approximation of, of the real world of the truth, the capital T truth, which to a Platonist or a Neoplatonist is the forms. But in a Christian context, that similar sort of dualism is just, well, it's God, right? Everything exists because it's, it exists through God, by God, God is in it. Um, but obviously it is just an imperfect approximation of God himself. Um, so that's that sort of platonic idea that's really, it's doing a lot of work in this text. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, just to sort of add on to that, um, he draws a lot on Platonism, but especially Neoplatonism and especially the Neoplatonist philosopher Plotinus of whom I don't know much about, but through reading around Augustine's confessions, um, Plotinus sort of extends Plato's idea, which is, you know, that there are multiple forms um, that, uh, of which, you know, things in our sort of like material, sensual world are lower forms or like varying degrees of manifestation of. But Plotinus thought there is one ultimate form from which all other forms and all other lower things sort of emanate from, which he called the one. Um, and Augustine, in his reading of Christianity, doesn't take God to be representative of just the forms, but of the one, like the one ultimate sort of like spiritual thing from which all things emanate. Um, and it's not just through reason that we can come to it. Um, it's also through sort of like spiritual contemplation that we can come to an awareness of this, this God, you know, absolute, the one. Um, and also, just for a bit of understanding here, you know, when we talk about Christianity um, and the Christian idea of what God is, where our, our current tools of looking at that do not serve us well for understanding what Augustine means and other, you know, Christian theologians mean when they talk about God. Because he says himself, like, you know, when I was in my younger days and I wasn't a Christian, I thought God was, you know, like a big man with a beard in the sky which is probably what a lot of uh, most atheists and a, a lot of Christians would believe God to be. It says, no, 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 God isn't like a material being. There's, there's no like, there's no like person out there sitting in the sky who is God or some like, he's just like a really big dude in a robe or something like that. Like 
God is what we use to describe this this spiritual being that undergirds all existence. You know, it's God is capital B being, which is uh, might sound like a, a silly sentence to say, but if we think of like you know, we look at uh, a painting or a piece of music or a beautiful landscape or a sunset. And we can think of those things in the platonic sense as all um, ideas or all sort of examples of the form of beauty. So there is such a thing as beauty, which exists in some like some beyond some realm, some spiritual realm of ideas and contemplation of which all these things are sort of lower examples. Right. Um and through the sort of like Neoplatonic reading of Christianity and Augustine himself, God is the form of being, right? All things that are in our world, all things that have beingness, that be, so that's us or sort of, I don't know, this little coffee cup I'm holding up or anything really, we're all just sort of like lower examples. We're lower. I don't, I don't want to sit I don't know if manifestation is the right word, but you understand what I'm sort of indicating towards here, right? We're all lower forms of this highest, this most pure universal form of being, which is God. So important to keep in mind, not a big guy with a beard and a robe sitting in the sky somewhere. It's good that you brought that up because he actually singles that out himself as being the single biggest roadblock on his way to finding God um, was this false conception that he had of God as resembling us uh, or having any sort of physical form or any sort of mass. Right. Um, And so, yeah, that is important to bring up because as you said, like that's what most people think today, um, but that's just not true. And it's not just Augustine who thinks that, like he goes, well, he, you know, he goes to Rome, for example, and he starts talking to like theologians in Rome and he realizes that a lot of what he thought Catholic doctrine was, he's just simply mistaken about it. Um, And he goes, wow, like these people don't think what I thought they thought. Um, There's this great quote, I should try and find it, but he's talking about how he realizes the things that he'd been railing against were not things that people actually thought they were just straw mans that he had concocted or that he'd been led to believe. And it sort of reminded me of the new atheist movement. Um, They spend so much time making fun of what are ultimately just misconceptions. And it's not the case that like Catholic doctrine or Christian doctrine actually think these things. Um, So I found that just so fascinating. Yeah, 100%. It's, uh, it's a shame that, you know, for something that's so great a tradition, uh, our understanding, our like modern understanding of it is in so sort of degraded and inaccurate a form. Um, but just to add a bit more detail to this idea of God, um, uh, you said, you brought up the idea that, you know, we, we reach the forms or we reach God through the exercise of our reason. Uh, away from our kind of worldly life. Um, Augustine brings up the idea that it's also through spiritual contemplation, not just through exercising our reason. Um, And this influenced the tradition of Christian mysticism 
not mysticism in the sense of like some new age, uh, you know, wishy-washy stuff, but the idea that it like through contemplation, we can reach like a unity with God. Um, and I, I remember when we were talking about the confessions, uh, you brought this up that you had a problem with the idea of, you know, ascribing pronouns to God. You know, we talk about him, he, his works, he did this, he did that. Um, and it's sort of like, in a sense, an impediment to Augustine's own understanding here. Like he uses these words because they're in the Bible, right? The, the Bible describes God pronouns, but um, I just want to bring this up because there's a later uh, Catholic theologian is also a Christian mystic called Meister Eckhart, and he really heavily draws on St. Augustine and sort of extends his ideas. And there's this quote from Meister Eckhart, which is, uh, we ask God to free us from God, in quotes, insofar as we conceive of God, which is sort of a mouthful, but pretty much what he's getting at there is, well, this this idea of what we're aiming towards, this idea of God is sort of like so far beyond language that the language we use to describe it just isn't adequate at all. And we get stuck in these loops and these holes that sort of push us away from understanding. So, uh, yeah, just, just thought that it was important to bring up that, uh, don't, don't keep this idea of a, a he, a he him, a he him God too heavily in your mind here because that's doesn't seem too much to be at the heart of what Augustine's talking about here. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, yeah, that is a roadblock for me uh, because the moments in the book where I'm most sympathetic to what I think is his conception of God, uh, it basically just this sort of permeating presence that's in everything um, and it's expressed well through Plotinus uh, in the Chadwick introduction that Plotinus thought that um, our experience with God uh, through contemplation was an experience of identity. So we actually realised that, you know, Augustine talks about in, in the book how um, our world is that of multiplicity and division. We see everything as being separate. But actually what you're saying before, this sort of highest form, everything is one. Um, and so that idea, you know, I'm very sympathetic to because it's got a lot of resonances in Eastern Asian philosophies and religions. Um, so insofar as that's what he means by God, us realizing that we are, we identify with this, with reality as a sum total, um, and that there is no division. Everything is just one. I can completely get on board with that, but yeah, you're right. Like sort of the describing it as a he, him, um, any, any sort of pronoun just seems to personify the concept and take us away from what he means. But you, you raise a good point that like our language necessarily sort of obviates us having a good understanding of what we're trying to get at because the concepts are so just so transcendent. So you can't express them in language, which again, ironically is another resonance with, uh, Taoism, for example, the way that can be spoken is not the eternal way. Um, and I wrote this down before, uh, he, where is it? 
one who knows does not speak about it. One who speaks about it does not know. And the idea here is that the, the, the truth is such that it is ineffable and any attempt to describe it when necessarily not going to do it justice. So, yeah, there are a lot of resonances there. Yeah, and Augustine does mention that like near the start. Uh, he says, uh, even those who are most gifted with speech cannot find words to describe you, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting how far this sort of resonance goes between traditions, right? Like you said that it feels very Taoist, and to me, it also it feels incredibly Hindu, like uh, the, the Hindu doctrine of Advaita Vedanta, which is that this, this physical material world is like purely a world of illusion um, and that the ultimate reality is that we are, God is unity and pervades everything and that's our life in this world of illusion and our idea of like separation and ego keeps us away from the reality of this unity and experience of, you know, like unity with God and that the, the aim of a spiritual life should be to, you know, go through contemplation and strip away our feeling of uh, separateness to reach a state of unity, which is, I mean, if this is happening, like, in these three separate traditions and they're all sort of describing and aiming at something that feels incredibly similar. Like that's a hell of a phenomenon. Like I think that might say something very important, (laughs) at least to me it does. (laughs) Yeah, no, it does to me too. Perhaps there is something there, right? Uh, If, you know, all these traditions and cultures are sort of noticing a very similar thing. Um, I found that quote I mentioned before where he realizes that what he'd been arguing against was just straw man's. And I just love it so much. Um, he says, and this is when he's, he goes to Rome. He says, yet I was glad if also ashamed to discover that I had been barking for years, not against the Catholic faith, but against mental figments of physical images. My rashness and impiety lay in the fact that what I ought to have verified by investigation I had simply asserted as an accusation. And I just think that's, A, it's just so well put um, and has, again, platonic resonances and the analogy of the cave that he's barking at shadows and figments. Um, But also just a nice reminder, and you can say this about anything, be it Christianity, socialism, neoliberalism, conservatism, um, the way that we sort of function is... We hear things, assertions made about certain ideas, and then rather than investigating them, we just repeat them as accusations. Um, Think about how the term neoliberalism is described to just mean anything that is bad about contemporary society or conservative is used as a byword for idiot or socialist is used as a byword for whatever. Um, It's just an, an an intellectual honesty in Augustine that I really appreciate. And it's interesting that prior to getting to that point, he was reading a lot of the academic skeptics. So he, it's sort of, he, whether or not you need to go through this or whether it just happened to be the case, but he gets that sort of training in skepticism that we need to be incredibly skeptical about what we think we know, because it's so hard to get at the truth. And so often so much of what we think is just faulty, but I love that. I love that the skepticism and the 
the intellectual honesty that comes through in the book repeatedly when he and he's ashamed to to, to discover that he's spent most of his twenties and thirties basically just hurling accusations at people. Yeah, and it's part of what makes it such a remarkable read is that like it's exactly his honesty, not just his emotional, not just sorry, his intellectual honesty, but also his like emotional honesty and his like psychological honesty. Like he really puts what he thinks and feels and does under the magnifying glass and goes, this is why I thought this was a good thing to do or this is why I, I felt this thing in this situation, um, which I don't, he, he has, like, even if you're not interested in Christianity, I still feel like this is such a wonderful read because of that and because of the wisdom that he derives from that, that process of honesty and putting things under the magnifying glass. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in assessing his own motivations, he he doesn't he doesn't blame or he doesn't ascribe cause to external things. And he actually explicitly says, "I mean, that's the habit of doing that. Uh, thinking that sin is something caused externally is was a thought that was inhibiting him from you know reaching God and God's truth. It's only when he realizes that." what makes him sin is himself it's within him um that's only when he's able to actually begin to appreciate um god and so you see that in the way that he writes as you said like he's incredibly perspicacious in his in his like self-reflection and pinpoints why he does things but he always locates the cause internally Actually, it's it's very good that you bring that up. Um, the idea of him having thought that evil was outside himself, but then he realised that it's within himself, because in the across the course of his uh, sort of narrative here of his own life, he mentions that before he goes to Christianity, he fell in with a religion called Manichaeanism, which was a very popular religion around the time of the late Roman Empire, which came about from I think around like. Persia um, but it was a religion uh, that's now extinct but held a sort of dualism uh, in the world uh, and held that goods and evil were both like independent and active forces in the world right it, not the Christian notion that there is goods and evil things are just sort of like absence from goods like in, in the same sense that like I don't know, uh, cold is just the absence of heat. Darkness is just the absence of light. Uh, Manichaeans thought, no, evil exists in itself and this evil is outside you. So each person is sort of like a battleground between the two, but it's not so much that your own actions, uh, your own minds is the source of this evil because you're, you're turned away from the good that something else is influencing you to do these things. And I think part of why he rails so hard against that is also through his conversion. Like he used to be a Manichaean Manichaean and hold these views, but he found it increasingly sort of intellectually bankrupt, uh, Manichaeanism. He mentions that he got to a point where he kept on having questions about it and he asked people in... um, I believe when he was still in Carthage, like, I I don't, how do you explain this thing? How do you explain that? And they're all saying, wait till this guy comes and visits. Like 
I forgot the guy's name. I should have written it down. But like, he's like the smartest one. He's like the smartest mannequin. Like anything you can ask, you can ask him. And he's got an answer for you. And he ends up meeting this guy. And Augustine's impression of him is he's very smooth. He's a smooth talker. He's got the gift of the gab. He's got a way with words. But because Augustine is so trained in rhetoric and also just because he's such an intelligent person, he can see through it, right? He can see through all those, you know, all those smooth words that there's nothing there. Like he's just sort of, it's just sophistry as like an ancient Greek would say. Um, And through that and through his uh, moving to Italy and uh, interactions with like Catholic theologians, he realizes no, Manichaeanism is sort of intellectually bankrupt, um, but Christianity offers both, you know, wisdom and truth and, you know, uh, a rich intellectual life. Actually, there's something else there that I wanted to mention, which is that uh, Manichaeanism, uh, part of Manichaeanism, I don't think any of the books survive today, but there were... uh, the prophet and like the sort of head figure of Manichaeanism was this guy called Manus. Um, and he wrote a bunch of books apparently. And a lot of books also do with like sort of like scientific knowledge and like the nature of reality. And Augustine's reading all of these and he's reading other like scientific and philosophical works. And he goes, this Manichaean stuff doesn't check out at all. Like it doesn't leave any room for this other stuff, which is true. And he says that was a massive flaw with it and a reason why he left it. Whereas Christianity, he thought, wasn't able to do that. But then he started meeting theologians and he realized, well, no, the Bible is an allegorical work. It's figurative. You know, there's still room for sort of scientific truth, like for intellectual development within the bounds of Christianity. Um, And that ends up being incredibly influential for his conversion. Yeah, it, it's so fascinating to, to read that, like, even in the 4th century, um, people who actually thought about this stuff, they thought that the Bible was allegorical. I mean, this idea that you would take it literally um, or that everyone did take it literally until we had the Enlightenment, which, you know, is the sort of straw man history of Christianity that you get from Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, it's just not true. Um, e- even back in the 4th century... The people thinking about this stuff were like, no, this is clearly an allegorical text. Obviously, it's not literal. Like, how could it be literal? Uh, It's, again, just, you know, reading this book is like a vaccine against that sort of stupid thinking. Um, So even, yeah, it's it's worth reading even for that, I think. New atheist owned once again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's just... Augustine owns new atheists. You know, those YouTube videos just like, Dawkins wrecks Christians. Mm. No, there's this interview, um, there's this YouTube channel called Cosmic Skeptic and he's this like young guy who I think is at, at Oxford um, and he's an atheist, uh, but his degree is in theology um, and he's sort of made this like YouTube persona from doing like, I guess, intro to philosophy videos on YouTube, uh, but he managed to get Richard Dawkins to come on his YouTube channel and so there's this clip of him, he's interviewing Richard Dawkins and um, like the clickbait title is Richard Dawkins thinks my degree is useless. And 
Richard Dawkins literally just says to this kid, like, you're wasting your time. Like, why are you getting a degree in theology? Like, there's nothing to be gained from it. Like, there's no insight, no, absolutely nothing. Um, and he goes, well, h- how do you know that? Like, if you haven't actually read them, like, it, Richard Dawkins just sort of rules it out a priori that there could be anything useful in these texts. And the kid goes, I don't know his name, apologies, but Cosmic Skeptic says, well, even, you know, wouldn't your own arguments against religion be better if you at least knew what they actually thought? And that makes Dawkins pause for a little bit, but then he's like, nah, nah. But, you know, clearly it would because you wouldn't be saying stupid things that no one thinks, mental figments, as Augustine calls them. Nah, man, you got to double down when you're confronted with something that challenges your worldview. That's always yeah. the best way to go. Always double down. <laughs> double down. You're right. Your, your, your book deals depend on it. Uh, but I want to, um, we're coming up to an hour, but I, I just want to talk about a few more resonances that I, that I noted. Um, I've mentioned Taoism, but there's also some Buddhist stuff in here, which is interesting. So people would be familiar with the Buddhist idea of impermanence and basically the root of all suffering is our failure to recognize that nothing is permanent. And so when we lose something, we suffer, but that's uh, just our own misunderstanding of the nature of reality. So Augustine, he has a friend who dies and he basically says this theory of impermanence. He says, misery, misery is the of every soul overcome by friendship with mortal things and lacerated when they are lost. Um, And then he says on page 60, 60 of the, Henry Chadwick, Oxford Classics version. Um, The reason why that grief had penetrated me so easily and deeply was that I had poured out my soul onto the sand by loving a person sure to die as if he would never die. So you see this sort of Buddhist idea of impermanence, the failure to understand the impermanence of our world is the root of all suffering. Um, And similarly, there's a line... This is how I interpreted it. I don't know if this is what he means, but he says, in virtue, I loved peace and in vice, I hated discord. And they sort of mean the same thing, but it's virtuous to love peace rather than hating the absence of peace, um, which is very Confucian because Confucius says, like, it's not enough just to take care of your parents because we take care of dogs, right? It's not about the act it's about the intention that you hold when you do that. It's actually about how you think about these things that is morally significant. And so I thought that was, um, yeah, a, a, a bit of a similarity there. Yeah, and we can sort of extend a bit of sort of a, a modern psychological insight onto that, uh, onto that sentence you brought up, which is that uh, you're better off having positive feelings and thoughts for doing things than negative ones, right? Because uh, this is sort of implicit in there, but uh, a lot of the journey is, a lot of the sort of um, confessions is his journey from being uh, an unhappy guy who's like driven by these sensual pleasures and lusts and he has these, these passions and he's just not all too positive and happy. But after his conversion to Christianity, he feels so at peace. He feels so positive. He feels so happy about himself and his place in the world that, you know, he comes to this understanding that 
you might as well start thinking about things in a good way. It sounds corny, but think positive thoughts. <laughs> yeah, Augustine, the uh, positive psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> really um, does seem that there's nothing new under the sun. I yeah. mean, so much of like modern science and these discoveries that we make and things that we can now empirically verify. Um, I mean, for example, like the Dunning-Kruger effect, that people are more confident and overestimate themselves when they know very little about something. Um, and then the more they know about something, their confidence declines, um, which is just a scientific way of saying that idiots talk a lot and smart people don't. Um, but we can sort of empirically measure that now. But 5,000 years ago in the Tao Te Ching and similarly, you know, in the fourth century, you have the of the same idea being expressed in an aphorism, you know, he, he who speaks does not know, he who knows does not speak. Um, and Augustine railing against the, loqu- the loquacity of, 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 the, of the rhetoricians um, really does seem to me that like so much, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, a lot of our ideas have just been around for a very long time. Yeah, and that also just hammers home the importance of, you know, reading the great books because they're great for a reason. They last because they have so much resonance and so much truth about them. Um, you know, and we can read modern stuff and there is a bunch of great modern stuff, but, you know, I don't understand why people would shy away from wanting to go to these things that have been a source of value and wisdom for so many generations. I mean, things like this last for a reason. It's because of reasons like this, you know, there are things in there that have become sort of like empirically verified over a thousand years after the fact, um, but is mentioned in such an eloquent and applicable way here. Yeah. I mean, Confucius himself said that I am wise because I have read the ancients, which is funny because now we think of him as the ancient, (laughs) but (laughs) he himself thought all his wisdom just came from reading earlier, earlier primary texts. Man, so that's a good exhortation to everyone listening. Go read this stuff. It's really good. Um, but It's hard, but it's good. Yeah. I, I think Augustine's actually pretty accessible. So if you want to start somewhere, this is, this is a pretty good one um, until the last couple of books. But speaking of the last couple of books, we'll just say that uh, from books one to nine, so keep in mind in these older sort of great works, uh, they're not chapters, they're books. Um, which pretty much means chapters. So you can say that you've read 12 books a week, right? Really? (laughs) You just mean like the 12 books in Augustine. (laughs) Uh, um, I I actually, I now that I think of it, I imagine back then that like these individual things would have been like scrolls. So one book of this would have been one scroll of the confessions. Um, So collectively that would have been like 12 books because you can't fit as much onto a scroll. Um, but yeah, the books from one to nine are sort of his autobiography and his conversion narrative. So it's his life up until he converts to Christianity um, and then moves back to North Africa from his high life living in the heart of the Roman Empire. And then books, and that, that's sort of like the most, you know, uh, effective sort of like heart wrenching and heartwarming section of the book books one to nine that's that's the part where he's trying to hook you in to his experience of life outside and his journey towards christianity but books 10 to 
what's the last book? 13. Is that right? Yes, it is 13. Books 10 to 13 are where he starts to get very philosophical. So like he abandons the narrative and he goes, okay, let's dig into detail on a couple of philosophical and theological issues. Um, book 10, uh, I know you found, and I also thought this was very interesting, was his treatment of the mind and memory. So do you want to take us off on that? Yeah, the memory book is is the most interesting, I thought, um, because it sort of prefigures so much of what we think is modern. Um, it's not modern. It's everything that's just been around for ages. Uh, but he, he he's basically, he's inquiring into the source, into the nature of memory. And he's trying to ask, like, where do, where do things come from? Because he... Um, again, it's very it's it's very platonic, right? Another thing that Plato said was that um, when we learn things, what's actually going on is we're remembering them, right? Because that sort of knowledge was already there innately within us because we once upon a time came from the realm of the forms and now we're in this world. And when we learn about things, we it's actually an act of remembrance. Um, so it's a, like, that's a similar sort of thing going on here. He's inquiring into the nature of memory and like remembering God and where is God? Is God in my memory? Where is he? Um, but it's, it's fascinating. First of all, he identifies himself with his mind, um, which we would think as being a peculiarly, peculiarly modern post Descartes idea, but he kind of does what Descartes does in this chapter. He goes, I am my mind. I'm not my body. I'm my mind. Um, so I found that fascinating that that idea is, you know, going right back to the, to the fourth century. Um, but then on page 185, for those who might have this copy, um, he's talking about going ever more inwards. And he says, I will therefore rise above that natural capacity in a step-by-step ascent to him who made me. I come to the fields and vast palaces of memory where are the treasuries of innumerable images of all kinds of objects brought in by sense perception hidden. There is whatever we think about a process which may increase or diminish or in some way alter the deliverance of the senses and whatever else has been deposited and placed on reserve and has not been swallowed up and buried in oblivion. So you have this sort of concept of the subconscious or, you know, the idea that like what, what's at the forefront of our mind is not, does not exhaust what's actually in there. And he's able to go into the, the palaces of memory. Just, I found it fascinating. Yeah. And he, he has a really interesting sort of through line for his treatment of the mind and memory where he says that, not that he says, but he, he pretty much says that uh, you can't separate the mind from memory, right? The operations of the mind are necessarily marked by the use of, of memory it's through our memory of uh sensory experience and of words and ideas that we're even able to think and operate in the world so there's there's no sense in which you can separate your memory of things from the operation of your mind itself yeah it's it's fascinating um but he also talks about how hard it is to actually do this introspection and one inevitably runs into the roadblock of not actually being able to fully explain the cogito. Like if I am my mind, well, then what is that? 
but that we can't do that. Uh, he, he says, I myself cannot grasp the totality of what I am. Is the mind then too restricted to compass itself? So that we have to ask, what is that element of itself which fails, which it fails to grasp? Um, yeah, hugely existential, hugely modern. Um, that our ability to look inwards. Um, I mean, the Eastern, the Easterners would just say, "Well, it's because there's nothing there. There is no ego. Um, you're looking for something that doesn't exist." Um, but it's fascinating. It's sort of like a dog chasing its tail. Uh, you just can't. And looking inwards, you can never quite catch yourself. Um, I loved it. Yeah, it's again. This just goes to show how remarkable his sort of like self insight is, though. Like he says, there's a certain point where you just can't keep going further because it's so arduous to pick apart your own mind. But the fact that he's able to keep it up for this long is just so impressive to me. Yeah, and he talks about how uh, people are interested in like. People find awe and beauty in mountains and et cetera, but in themselves, they're uninterested. And yet, you know, there's so much mystery and riddle within ourselves. It's a very fascinating idea. Yeah. And it's also through looking at his mind that he tries to sort of uh, figure out a way for people to reach God, right? So... It's not, he's not just trying to pick apart his mind for its own sake, but also where is the source of my own belief and my own path to God? Yeah, he's, he's not just trying to pick apart it in his memories for his own sake. Um, and he does bring up like a sort of interesting issue, which is that, well, if God exists, um, then we would assume that all people would sort of have some sort of understanding of God. And he says that even when he was a child, he believed in God, but he ended up sort of like going away from that. Um, but then he starts to wonder, like, what's, what was the source of his own connection with God when he was a child that he later got rid of? But when he was a child, he sort of like had no sense of how that came about in his own memory. Yeah, you're right. He, he, he is doing this because he thinks it's how you might access God. I mean, so Charles Taylor writes about this um, in The Ethics of Authenticity, which is our first ever episode. Uh, but he talks about like the construction of the modern idea of the individual self. And he goes back to Augustine and he talks about, I don't think it's in Confessions where he says this, it might be in City of God. Uh, but he says something like, an understanding of God passes through a reflexive awareness of ourselves. So, yeah, it's this idea to know God, we've got to first go inwards and reflectively understand ourselves, um, which is, yeah, a f- fascinating idea. And sort of Taylor argues that, like, this is really one of the building blocks of, of the idea of, indi- of, of the individual self. And it also feels like it has a lot of tinges of, like you brought up, Eastern spirituality, like, you know, you could talk about the, uh, like, ascetic tradition in Hinduism where people go off um, and commit themselves to a life of sort of meditation and introspection so they can sort of realise God and their their connection to God. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's so interesting to me that people in the West turn to Eastern spirituality for this sort of uh, 
understanding of like introspection and meditation and uh, trying to gain unity with some, you know, absolute reality when there is such a rich history of that within Christianity. Um, I was listening to some interview the other day um, where a guy said that people, people in the West are sort of like inoculated against Christianity as a source of spiritual meaning because it, it's uh, sort of degenerated form in the way that we understand it today in the West uh, is so all-encompassing and also so unconvincing that we just don't think to even look at it as a source of spiritual life. So that's why people go to other traditions to arrive at, you know, very similar ideas and practices. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, certainly like this has very little in common with most people who would call themselves Christian today, Um, which is sad because you're right. There's a lot in here that's very valuable. Yeah, 100%. Um, uh, Should we go on to this chapter where he's talking about time? Because I thought that was also pretty cool. Yeah, sure. All right. So in the chapter book after the one where he's talking about memory, he goes on to time and he his prompting for this is that God is an eternal being, right? It's the people think of eternity as being like a really, 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 really long time. And he goes, no, that's, that's not what eternity is. Eternity is beyond time. Like right at the start, he has this passage where he talks about um, all of history, past, present, and future as encompassing God's today. Now, everything that happened a thousand years ago was part of God's today. And everything that will happen a thousand years from now is part of God's today because he's an eternal being. But we don't experience that. We experience um our own life and in our own existence, our own existence through time, and then he goes to think, well, what what is time? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about time? Which might sound like a sort of silly question, but the more you think about it, the more it kind of gives you a headache because, so yeah, actually, like, what is this thing that we're talking about when we talk about time? Um, and he goes through a couple of things um, like he talks about the past um, and when he says, well, the past doesn't really exist, does it? Because, well, we're not there anymore. How can something exist of which we are not part and we have no experience? Um, we can say that we existed in the past, but, you know, like, five days ago doesn't exist in the same sense that us living and doing this right now exists, right? Because no one alive in the world or in the universe right now has experience, current experience of five days ago. And it's the same with the future. Like how can we even say that the future exists if it's not here? We know that there, we think and we say that there is such a thing as the future, uh, because, you know, we have been in the past and, well, that, that Augustine would object to that to say that we have been in the past, but we have been in a presence and that presence has gone away and we've come to a present that we, at that time before, thought was the future. 
So we can think of there being a future, but again, like how does that exist if we have no experience of it and it has not even come about yet? Um, so he sort of sweeps all of that away to come to the idea that the only thing that actually exists is the present. There's no such thing as past and future, really. The only thing that we can say exists in terms of time is like this present second and now this present second and so on and so forth, which is, I don't know, it's a real head-wracking idea, but um, well, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, this is this is called presentism in the philosophy of time, uh, which I'm not sympathetic to at all. Um, did a whole unit on the philosophy of time, which absolutely fried my brain. Damn, yeah, um, this even this has fried my brain, so I can't imagine how a whole unit would have gone for that. Yeah, it's rough. But there are different. So there are people who think there are presentists who think that only the present exists. Uh, there are people who think the past and the present exists. And then there are people who think the present, the past, and the future all exist. Um, so they're different metaphysical positions. And Augustine comes down and he's a presentist. Um, but I actually found this chapter self-contradictory uh, because on the one hand, I, I agree with what he says about the nature of eternity. He goes, you can't ask the question, what was God doing before he created the universe? Because there was no before. God does not experience time in a, a period of successive moments. So the question itself is nonsensical. There was no time as we understand it before he created the universe. That's only a question you can ask within the confines of the laws of nature, um, which, you know, is actually like that idea has come back into prominence with the big bang theory, because logically we would understand cause and effect so anything has to have a cause. So therefore, well, well, what caused the Big Bang, for example, um, or how long, how long time elapsed before the Big Bang happened? Those questions only make sense within the universe created by the Big Bang. So therefore, logically, you can't apply the same rules to the Big Bang itself or whatever happened outside of it uh, because the conditions for those questions don't yet exist. So in that sense, Augustine is remarkably, you know, ahead of the game again in sort of in recognizing that. But at the same time, if God is eternal and as you say, like everything, it seems to me that you'd have to accept that the past, present and the future all exist if you think that like, because A, God must know the future because he knows what's going to happen. He's omnipotent. Um, therefore he's thought about it therefore it in a sense exists. So the future does exist in, in that sense. So I, I look, I could just very well not be understanding the chapter, but for me, I thought there was a bit of a contradiction. The most coherent way for me is, is that like the universe just exists as a sum total, not just spatially, but temporally as well, that past, present and future all exist at once. We experience it as a succession, but, from God's view, everything exists all at once. There is a future. Right, right. Yeah, I see what you mean in that sort of being contradictory in St. Augustine's own conception. But I, yeah, damn. I, I guess you could say in, in defense of St. Augustine, what he's going for is the source of our own experience of time. So as far as our own experience is concerned, only the present exists. We cannot say that the past or present has any influence on our 
current experience of time because the only thing that we really experience is the present. But I guess, yeah, in like a broader sort of metaphysical perspective, then that he, he would sort of have to reconcile himself with the idea that past and future all exist concurrently as well. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly correct to say that there's an element of time that's just subjective. I mean, we know that now to be true, that how long something feels is is purely subjective. Uh, but there is a part of the chapter which now we would reject as against being science, where he goes, well, time is not the movement of objects. When in fact, we know that it is, <laughs> because if the faster something moves, um, the slower time goes around it because the heavier it gets, right? So time is quicker for people up in a space station than it is down on earth because mass bends space time and therefore time moves more slowly uh, around heavy things. So, and movement generates mass. So that, you know, we can't be too hard on him, but like that element of it is not correct. Uh, But he's absolutely correct that there's like a subjective element to time that it's just, certainly it's phenomenological experience is purely subjective. Yeah, and it, it does kind of tie into his thing of memory. I just found something here. Um, there are three kinds of time in the mind. There's the present with respect to things of the past, which is the memory. Again, drawing on that previous chapter, the present with respect to things that are present, which is contemplation, and the present with respect to things that are in the future, which is expectation. So, yeah, as far as like phenomenological experience of time, all that exists is the present and different sort of mental processes that we use the present for, which gives us an understanding of past and future. Yeah, very, very, very fascinating um, and phenomenologically prescient and prefigures phenomenology and existentialism, as you've said several times. Um, look, it's a, a great text. I would recommend that people read it. It's hard going at times. Um, it sort of had a contradictory effect on my own thinking. Like on the one hand, it made me realize how many straw mans exist of Christian theology and Christianity in general. And it made me a lot more sympathetic to, to it as a, as a religion, as a, as a set of ideas. But then on the other hand, it also pushed me further away from it in that everything I found most persuasive, I thought is better articulated and with less metaphysical baggage in something like Taoism. Um, but that's just my own personal belief that that philosophy is a better articulation of what he's trying to get at, or at least what I think he's trying to get at. Um, so that's how I personally reacted to it. What about you? Yeah. As regards the sort of metaphysical baggage, like I really get where you're coming from. Um, we're not going to talk about the last two books, but in the second last book, he is looking at sort of different um, different uh, interpretations of the first two lines of Genesis, um, which is the first book of the Bible. And he's arguing through all these different interpretations and he says that, like, he sort of compares Scripture to like a spring with like streams of water spreading out. And he says that there could be more than one true interpretation and each person can draw whatever true conclusions they can from the texts, you know, like in the same sense that you can, from this stream, draw water from different points in the same way you can draw truth from scripture 
at different points using different interpretations and meanings, yeah? So I think that he does kind of give this out, which is that you don't have to subscribe to my metaphysical baggage. Um, there's still space for other um, for other considerations within this framework or you, there's still different frameworks you can make uh, within this tradition rather. But... Yeah, I, I love this. I love this so much, apart from the sort of last two books, which ended up becoming like very dry, thinly stretched interpretation, I thought. Um, but I, yeah, this is incredibly valuable. Very interesting, you know, even just from like a like historical and um, history of ideas perspective, just to see how much was here that got picked up on later or how much... Uh, stuff here prefaced things that ended up occurring later uh, even if not you know consciously but at the same time i thought this was very valuable spiritually you know just in the sense of you know gathering wisdom as well like he's an incredibly wise persuasive man even if you don't want to subscribe to his christianity there's still so much there that you can gather and apply to your own life which is what i love so much about ancient philosophy so much of ancient philosophy isn't just like Oh, here's some cool like ideas and intellectual exercises, but like, how can we change your life for the better through the exercise of reason? And I think Augustine is great at doing that and presenting that in a very accessible and um, not just accessible, but like quite an enjoyable read as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he. You're right to say that you don't have to accept his particular interpretation of the of the lines in the Bible, the, the streams that we're drawing water from. But to me, it, it it sort of seems like Christianity and any other you know religion of the book is hamstrung by the fact that it continuously has to uh, deal with and draw out of these texts, and everything has to if you want to say this idea is is Christian, you have to always bring it back to, well, can we find the root of this idea in the text? Does this interpretation make sense? So it's always having to carry that around with it. It's, it's hamstrung by that. But at the same time, it's always trying to transcend. It's always trying to transcend this world, um, our understandings of things. And so that like tension that exists, um, it just seems to me a tension that is unnecessary because so much of that tension is just a very weirdly Western way of thinking uh, that it comes to us from the Greeks, that sort of dualism about the world. And if you go to Taoism or Confucianism where that dualism doesn't exist, you don't get that constant struggle for transcendence because it's not an idea that, that they just, that they have. So it seems to me there's just a lot of unnecessary stuff that in, in this way of looking at the world that, that, that need not be there. Um, but anyway, I agree with you mostly. It's a, it's a fascinating and insightful and wise book. Um, the last thing I want to say is a quote on one of the last pages, which I just thought was very beautifully put. Um, he talks, he's talking about lust again. Uh, he says, the haughtiness of pride, the pleasure of lust and the poison of curiosity are the passions of a dead soul. The soul's death does not end all movement. Its death comes about as it departs from the fount of life so that it is absorbed by the transitory world and conformed to it. Um, so those people who, you know, their life's pursuit is 
the accumulation of wealth, for example, uh, in a sense, their soul is dead uh, because they have moved away from the fount of life and are concerned with that which is transitory. And I thought that was quite beautiful. Yeah, no, he's a fantastically sort of like insightful and wise writer. Um, look, I, I still find great value in the Christian tradition. It's something that I want to I want to explore a bit more Christian theology, um, and partly through Augustine's own sort of exhortation to view it as like wisdom literature and not so much like a hard and fast factual statements about the world. Um, but going on to the idea of uh, how, how comparative Augustine's own ideas are to different traditions, there's this that I thought does, a, uh, this sort of passage from him that I think does a good job of showing his um, his idea and his uh, experience of of God in a way that is uh, has a lot of overlap with other traditions. I am divided between time gone by and time to come, and its course is a mystery to me. My thoughts, the intimate life of my soul, are torn this way and that in the havoc of change. And so it will be until I am purified and melted by the fire of your love infused into one with you. Unity. I, yeah, I think that's the most fascinating and sympathetic part for me of, of what he's getting at. I can't argue with that. Catholic podcast confirmed. Tradcat podcast confirmed. <laughs> oh, no. We should do the Tao Te Ching uh, at some point. Um, 100%. I'm keen. It's uh, literally like you can finish it in an hour because it's mm. like less than 100 pages, but each page is like four lines. So it's very, it's very easy to read. Um, yeah. So next up is symposium by yeah. plato which is a very nice tie-in with this because it's the platonic dialogue that um talks most about love and beauty and then goes on to talk about you know the form the ultimate ideas of love and beauty which augustine uh ends up drawing on for his own conception of god so and not just that it's also like a fantastic read and a very interesting dialogue in its own right and short very short which always helps <laughs> uh, alright thanks for listening everyone and uh, remember please like and subscribe and if you have any suggestions recommendations any episodes that you want us to do please let us know and we yes, will please do let us know we will do it as long as it's not like 600 pages <laughs> yeah as long as it's not the phenomenology of spirit <laughs> <laughs> alright Peace. Thanks, everyone.